Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, the Chief of Geriatrics discusses a controversial new Alzheimer's medication. This is a medicine that's brand new. Uh, we don't have clear indi indication yet on how well it works in buying people more time. And that's what people really want with a disease like Alzheimer's disease. And a neurologist provides an overview of multiple sclerosis, including symptoms, diagnosis and treatment, and promising research. Numbness and tingling, another common symptom in MS, uh, may, may be present for a few minutes to a few hours, then go away for a while. But the key is that those fluctuating symptoms become more prominent and more continuous over that period of time. All that, plus a visit from the Healing Muse, after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a neurologist who specializes in treatment of multiple sclerosis explains symptoms to watch for. Then he goes over treatment strategies for MS and promising research. But first, what you need to know about the medication that was recently approved for use in people with Alzheimer's disease. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A new drug for people with Alzheimer's disease was approved by the FDA recently, but the approval has been controversial. Here to help us understand why is Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's the Chief of Geriatrics at Upstate and a former president of the American Geriatrics Society. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Brangman. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Now, I imagine you're getting many questions about Adyahelm from patients and their loved ones. What are you telling them? So what we're telling them is that the drug is not available yet and that the drug requires a set of guidelines that we're working on establishing. It also requires us to coordinate care across different specialties from the neuroradiologists who have to read the MRIs to infusion centers where the person would get the medication. And this all takes time to set up. This is a medicine that's brand new. Uh, we don't have clear indi indication yet on how well it works in buying people more time. And that's what people really want with a disease like Alzheimer's disease. Now, is that what Adyahelm, this, this new medication, is that what it's supposed to do? Just postpone a, a person's demise? So this is a drug that's in the category of new medications that attack the amyloid plaque that builds up in the brain. And amyloid plaque is the sticky protein. If you can think of the nerves in the brain like a delicate spider web, this protein gets in there and clumps up all those delicate nerves. And the drug is very good at removing that amyloid plaque. The next step is to see once that plaque is removed, is that keeping someone's brain healthier? Is it stopping Alzheimer's disease? And is it giving them a benefit of living disease-free? And that's the part we don't know yet. So we know that it's very good at removing the plaque and that's what the FDA approved it. The FDA approved it because it's good at removing the plaque, but we're just short of that next step. Let me ask you a little more about the um, amyloid plaque. Is Does everyone have this or does everyone develop it as they age? So um, there is a strong correlation between the buildup of, the, of this plaque and the development of Alzheimer's disease. Of course, that doesn't mean everybody with plaque is gonna get Alzheimer's disease. And we know that there are some people without plaque who get Alzheimer's disease. But there's a strong correlation that if you have memory problems and if you have this amyloid plaque, it's very likely to be Alzheimer's disease. What does it do to the brain or does it do anything to affect the brain tissue? Well, having amyloid in the brain is not a normal event. So the science and the research has been trying to figure out the chicken or the egg question. 
is Alzheimer's disease caused by having this amyloid there? Or does Alzheimer's disease start and then amyloid comes in? And there's a lot of debate about what comes first, but we do know that if you have amyloid and you have memory problems, your chances of having Alzheimer's disease increases significantly. What we're trying to find out now is if you remove that amyloid, is there a benefit in slowing down the disease process? Now, how do you know if someone has amyloid? So the way that we can tell right now is by doing a special kind of brain scan called a PET scan with a dye that would help the amyloid light up in the brain. They are working on other ways of looking at amyloid. So you can also get a spinal tap because we know that this amyloid protein is in the spinal fluid. And they're also working on a blood test because the amyloid is present also in the blood. But these tests are not ready yet. The spinal tap is available, but not too many people wanna get a spinal tap. And the blood test would be very nice and convenient because people are used to getting blood tests and it's quick and easy, but it's not ready yet for mass use. It's still just in the research stages. So right now, the only way we can really tell if somebody has this amyloid plaque is with a PET scan. And that is a test that Medicare has not paid for to date. If you don't have amyloid in, in your brain, taking this medicine doesn't really make sense. So we want to make sure that we're giving it to people who actually have amyloid and something for this drug to work on. Now, what does amyloid plaque have to do with another protein called tau, T-A-U? So tau and amyloid are connected because tau also builds up in the brain, and that also disrupts some of the delicate nerves and tubules and passageways in the brain so that the signals don't have anywhere to go and those cells die. So there are some drugs that are also targeted toward tau. And it's possible at some point in the future, people are gonna take a combination of medications. They may take an amyloid uh, buster, they may take a tau buster, they may take a medicine for inflammation, they may take another medicine to make their brain more sensitive to sugars. It's, it's we're in the very early stages of finding uh, treatments for this very complex disease. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Sharon Brangman, the Chief of Geriatrics at Upstate, about the new Alzheimer's drug that was recently approved by the FDA. Now, what did the clinical trials tell us about the effectiveness of this medication? So the clinical trials were stopped initially because they didn't see any benefit. And then the drug company went back and looked at the the data again and thought saw some benefit, but by then the trial had stopped. As I mentioned, this drug is very good at removing the amyloid and the trial was stopped because it didn't show any improvement in brain function. But then when they went back and looked at the data, they saw something that suggested that there may be some improvement in brain function. Normally what would happen is that you would start the trial again and look at this improvement or not to see if it was there. But the FDA decided that they would do an accelerated approval, which means they recognize that this uh, drug removes the amyloid plaque. So the, the drug company, which in this case is Biogen, now has nine years to show if the drug is affected, effective so that there's going to be ongoing studies to see if the drug is actually effective. Well, if I understand correctly, Adyahelm was approved by the FDA after advisory committee recommended against approving it, and then after it was approved, three physicians from that advisory committee resigned in protest. How unusual is something like that? So that's pretty unusual. The FDA sets up groups of advisors to help them uh, study the 
the data and the information about different drugs. And the FDA is not obliged to listen to the advisory committee, and but in most cases they do. Or if the advisory committee might have a split decision, the FDA steps in and makes the final decision. But it's pretty unusual when the advisory committee essentially says this drug shouldn't be approved for the FDA to go ahead and approve it. So this is an unusual situation. Now, before the trial, the clinical trial was ended, do you think it included adequate numbers of African-American, Asian, and Latino patients? So this clinical trial, just like many of the trials in the United States, do not have representative groups of people. This trial was, this drug was essentially tried on, on uh, Caucasians, white people, um, but very few African-Americans, very few Asians, and very few Latinos. But this, as I said, unfortunately, is part of our sad truth in this country because we have not looked at drugs in people who actually are more impacted by the disease. So the irony here is that African-Americans are two times more likely to get Alzheimer's disease and Latinos are one and a half times more likely. So um, I have to look at this drug and say, is it worth a try in people who it wasn't really tested on? Now, we do not know if the drug would be different in people because they have a different racial background because as you know, race is really just a social construct. It's something that humans made up to put people in certain groups. It doesn't necessarily have a biological basis or a genetic basis. And so on that front, you would think that there shouldn't be much difference because the color of your skin doesn't affect your biology. But it's really past the point where we should be guessing. We should have information so that we can make informed decisions no matter what our race is. We shouldn't be guessing at this point in time in medical care. So that is a concern, and that is a concern with many of the clinical trials in this country. Well, who is this drug designed for? Is it for the early stage uh, Alzheimer's patient or the late stage? And is it indicated for other forms of dementia? So this drug, was tested on people who had mild cognitive impairment, which is a type of memory loss that isn't quite Alzheimer's disease yet, but has a high chance of developing into Alzheimer's. And it was also tested on people who have mild Alzheimer's disease. However, the FDA gave approval for anyone with Alzheimer's disease to try this drug. And we don't have any information that this would help people who are moderate or advanced. So I don't think it would be appropriate for moderate or advanced people to take this medication. I think it would be uh, more appropriate for it to be used on the people who it was tested on, meaning the mild cognitive impairment and mild Alzheimer's disease. We also do not have any information on how this would work in other forms of dementia. So as you may know, Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia in our country. But there are other kinds of dementia, such as Lewy body, vascular dementia, Parkinson's disease. We even hear about football players who get dementia from lots of head trauma. But this was only tested in people with Alzheimer's disease, so there's really no indication that it would help other types of dementia. How is it taken? Is it, is it a pill or an injection? So this is an IV infusion. Uh, uh, anyone who takes this drug would have to go to a special infusion center where they would give this medication IV. It would take about an hour for it to, to enter the body, and it would be given once a month. And those are some of the details we're trying to work out right now so that we can um, make sure there's enough room in infusion centers for persons who might want to try this medication. Is that why the list price I've read is like $56,000 a year? Is that why it costs so much? Because you have to go to an infusion center? I have no idea how drugs are priced. That is a mystery to me, and that is a whole nother category. But the, the $56,000 is the price for the actual drug. And when you go to an infusion center, there is another cost. 
And when you get an MRI, there's another cost. So that, again, we're waiting to hear exactly what that might mean for a patient, but there are gonna be a number of co-pays or money they're gonna have to take out of their pocket every time they go for an MRI or an infusion. And that could run about 11 or maybe even $12,000 out of pocket. The cost of the drug would probably be charged to Medicare and most insurance companies follow what Medicare does, but we don't have any information on that right now because we're waiting for Medicare's determination on if they will cover this drug or how much of the price they will cover. So we don't really know what the real cost will be to patients at this time. And that's been another big question that patients have been asking. My concern is that if this is very expensive, that will keep certain people from having access to this medication. And we already know there are a lot of disparities and unequal care based on cost. And it would be terrible to have another situation like that. What about side effects? I read that 40% of people taking Adyahelm in the trial developed painful brain swelling. And that seems like a lot. So the, the information is correct. There are certain um, side effects when you're removing the amyloid plaque from the brain. Some of it is swelling in the brain and it's also, you can get little small hemorrhages. Uh, from my information, the majority of people who get this don't have very serious problems with it. It has to be monitored carefully and the uh, dose of the drug has to either be stopped or adjusted depending on how severe uh, those hemorrhages or the swelling is. The majority of people seem to recover, but again, this is new information that we are trying to figure out right now. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's the Chief of Geriatrics at Upstate and a former president of the American Geriatrics Society. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an overview of multiple sclerosis. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Treatment breakthroughs, improved healthcare, and lifestyle changes have helped to increase the life expectancy for people with multiple sclerosis. Today, I'm turning to Dr. Corey McGraw for an overview of MS. He's an assistant professor of neurology, and among his patients are people living with multiple sclerosis. Dr. McGraw, I'm grateful that you're here today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start by talking about some of the common symptoms of MS that people may experience. What yeah. causes optic neuritis and or the loss of vision in one eye? Absolutely. So, um, you know, multiple sclerosis can cause uh, many different neurological symptoms. Um, however, um, some of the more common and, and specific symptoms include, as you just described, optic neuritis. This is this is loss of vision of one eye, and it, it typically uh, is a graying of vision, blurring of vision that evolves over a few days to a few weeks. That's one one hint that uh, neurological symptom might be MS, that it evolves over days to weeks. It's oftentimes associated with pain of eye movements. So patients will, will experience pain in the eye, around the eye. Um, and, and they may also have headache either around the eye or, or on the same side of the head. Um, the vision loss um, oftentimes is accompanied by loss of color vision. That's another hint that this might be inflammation within the optic nerve or optic neuritis, and classically sort of described as a loss of um, the color red. Um, so people will um, will experience not so much a you know red turns to gray, but they may notice that the reds are less sharp or 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 more orange in color when they look through the affected eye. Wow, and I know there's a lot of other symptoms. For instance, um, weakness that might impair walking. Does that all also come on weeks to days? That's right. So, so again, one of the sort of 
key um, ways we differentiate different causes of neurological symptoms is by the time of their onset. So, um, you know, in, in contradistinction, um, stroke symptoms, which I'm sure um, our listeners have heard a lot about, um, are, um, are what we call maximal in intensity on onset. So they evolve over seconds to minutes and are quite severe within minutes to hours. Um, so that's one way that we can help differentiate the cause of neurological symptoms is, is the length of time. So we, we usually say that an MS symptom um, is going to last at least 24 hours, um, not less than that, but really days to weeks. So it may take days to weeks as it's building, but does it does it come and go or does it become a constant symptom? Yeah, absolutely. It can be either. So um, you mentioned walking. So people may notice imbalance in walking, weakness in one or both legs. It oftentimes starts with uh, symptoms such as, you know, more difficulty getting out of the car, getting upstairs, um, walking long distances. Um, and, and then over days to weeks, it evolves to being more and more prominent. Um, for my patients who are diagnosed with MS, they oftentimes wait a few days to a week before they call me to let me know, you know, this symptom, it's, it's, it's getting worse, it's happening more frequently, um, and so I thought I'd better call. But you're right, some symptoms can fluctuate. So, for instance, numbness and tingling, another common symptom in MS, um, may, may be present for a few minutes to a few hours then go away for a while, come back and forth. It may be more bothersome at night when people are laying in bed and they're not distracted by the day's activities. But the key is that those fluctuating symptoms become more prominent and more continuous over that period of time. How good a job do you think primary care doctors do at identifying patients with MS? And at what point, I mean, because some of these symptoms sound a little vague or maybe they could be something else. And at what point do you think people need to be referred to a neurologist like yourself who has specialization? We think about a million people in the United States have multiple sclerosis um, and perhaps, you know, 2.5 million people worldwide. So most MS care is done by primary care doctors, right? Um, and they're certainly the first line of defense in, in recognizing symptoms of MS. Um, I think they do. I think they do a very good job. So uh, the job of a primary care provider is to recognize that that um, that uh, a patient is experiencing something abnormal and and refer them appropriately. And um, and you know I think we have wonderful uh, primary care providers here in our region that do a good job of recognizing these things. How is MS usually diagnosed? Uh, multiple sclerosis is is first and foremost diagnosed clinically, so it's it's based on um, symptoms um, that come on over time, as as we described. Um, uh, most patients who are diagnosed with MS are diagnosed with what we call relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis, and about, this is about eighty five percent of MS patients. Uh, and um, the symptoms start with what we call attacks or exacerbations of new neurological symptoms. Um, uh, they're, they're also called relapses. That's where the name relaxing remitting comes from. And this is, again, the onset of these, you know, notable new neurological symptoms um, that evolve over time. And then actually over weeks to months, they may improve on their own and they remit. And this is why we call it relapsing remitting. Um, and, uh, you know, those, those attacks may go unrecognized initially. So often when I meet patients for the first time, they may have had a few attacks in their lives where a, a neurological symptom came out. Maybe they didn't think much of it. Maybe it was mild. It went away on its own. And of course, with symptoms that resolve on their own, we, you know, we may not do additional follow-up. So the key in making the diagnosis is in those, in that, those sort of historical clinical events. Um, the, the other type of uh, uh, multiple sclerosis are what we call the progressive forms of multiple sclerosis. And these, um, specifically something called primary progressive MS, um, starts from the onset with more insidiously worsening neurological symptoms. So somewhat different than the relapsing remitting forms, we see patients um, have the very slow onset of neurological symptoms. For instance, imbalance, weakness of legs, um, uh, double vision, dizziness, cognitive problems that um, 
just slowly get worse over time. We're talking year in and year out. So someone may think, well, three years ago, I could go on vacation and walk the entire beach. And, you know, two years ago, we really only could walk half of it. This year, I needed to use a cane on the beach to get down. Um, and, and it's th those sort of slowly progressive symptoms that hint at the progressive forms of MS. About 10 to 15% of people have progressive forms of MS. You mentioned that it's, you know, you, you rely a lot on the patient's story to um, arrive at a diagnosis. Are there any blood tests or imaging scans or procedures that help? Yes, so so right in the right clinical context, um, oftentimes recognized by primary care providers, um, the next step is really to obtain MRIs. So these are um, scans of the central nervous system. So MS is a disease that affects um, the central nervous system. So optic nerves, brain and spinal cord. And um, uh, MS causes very typical um, uh, um, areas of scar in the brain and the spinal cord. We call them lesions. Um, basically, what that means is areas of inflammation that have occurred either in the optic nerves, brain, or spinal cord, and typically in all of those locations in patients who have MS. Most lesions, again, these areas of scars, are um, asymptomatic. So when a patient has had their first neurological symptom, you know, we may find many of these scars on the brain and the spinal cord. And that's one key component of making a diagnosis of MS. Um, laboratory testing is important in that we look for other diseases that could what we call mimic MS. So um, other uh, inflammatory diseases, uh, rheumatological diseases such as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and, and the such, certain infectious diseases, um, nutritional deficiencies. Um, we look for all of these things um, and, and um, to, to make sure that there isn't any other treatable cause. And then, and then lastly, for some patients, they may require what's called a lumbar puncture or uh, more commonly known as a spinal tap. Um, and that is where we access um, the cerebral spinal fluid. This is fluid that surrounds the brain and the spinal cord. Um, it's a relatively non-invasive procedure with a, a needle placed in the lower back. Um, and we're actually able to do some specific tests on um, the cerebral spinal fluid um, that can help confirm the diagnosis of MS. But um, often we don't need to do that because the clinical history and MRIs alone um, allow us to make the diagnosis. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Corey McGraw. He's a neurologist with expertise in multiple sclerosis. Someone who's newly diagnosed with MS is likely scared and full of questions. What would you like them to know about their outlook? So I, I think that's very true, you know, to hear the diagnosis of MS, um, you know, I should say that MS is very common, particularly in our region. So, um, you know, as many as maybe one in 265 people in, in the Northeast have multiple sclerosis. So what that means is that everybody knows somebody who has MS, whether you, whether you know they have MS or whether they're friends and families and colleagues who have not disclosed that diagnosis, uh, I am confident that everyone knows someone who has MS. What that means is that we, we know lots of folks who are living with MS who have no disability. Um, they're living their lives normally. And so what I like to let patients know is, first of all, you're not alone. Um, um, as far as neurological disease goes, it's very common. Um, the vast majority of people live their lives with MS without disability. Um, we only see the folks who have a visible disability. So when you are in the store and you're in your place of work, you may see somebody with a cane or a walker and they likely will have had to disclose their diagnosis to their friends and families and coworkers because people ask, why are you using this cane? Why are you, what is this disability you have? Um, but folks, um, for, for most people, um, they don't have any outward signs of disability. Um, and so it is a disease that people live with um, that is highly treatable. Um, it's important to recognize early, but our expectation is that people live full normal lives with MS. 
Now, why is it more common in the northern U.S. than in the south? So that's a great question. Um, you know, we don't understand what the cause of MS is. I should just briefly say we know that it is what's called an autoimmune disease. So it's a disease where the immune system has learned to attack itself. Um, and in the case of multiple sclerosis, the immune system has learned to attack the optic nerves, brain, and spinal cord. Um, the underlying causes of our immune system sort of going haywire um, still are, are not clear. Here's what we do know. We know that folks who live further from the equator have a higher risk of developing multiple sclerosis. So, um, so the more northern, so in our, in our hemisphere, the more north you live from the equator, the higher your risk. We know that people who are born and raised in these higher risk regions um, continue to um, carry that risk throughout their life if they lived in that region before the age of 15. If you move away from a high-risk region to a low-risk region, so closer to the equator, early in life before the age of 15, your risk actually goes down. If you move from a low-risk region, again, around the equator, to a high-risk region before the age of 15, your risk goes up. So there's something happening early in people's lives um, uh, that has to do with distance from the equator. We think part of that has to do with exposure to the sun and vitamin D production. So vitamin D is an important immunomodulator, meaning it modulates the immune system, calms the immune system. Um, so a lack of vitamin D tends to cause autoimmunity. We think probably living further from the equator we're all exposed to more seasonal viruses um, in more northern latitudes. So we have a summer, we have a winter, we have a you know, flu and cold season. And that continuous yearly pulse of virus exposure seems to have something to do with the development of MS. And you know, then there are many things that we don't understand. Um, more northern latitudes may be more polluted. There may be more environmental toxins. These have never been proven. Um, however, you know, it is notable that that's the case. And then lastly, people have sort of a genetic predisposition. So um, MS is not inherited. So it's, it's not a one-to-one -one association between children and parents. Rather, it's sort of a combination of many, probably hundreds of genes that contribute a small risk to, uh, uh, by each gene, but in the right combination, in the right person, and then the right environmental exposures early in life seems to precipitate the disease. Is there any way to screen someone for MS so that it can be caught early? So we generally recommend um, that, um, you know, in the general public doesn't need screening. However, if someone does develop neurological symptoms that are typical for MS, it's important to you know, undergo the appropriate evaluation um, by a neurologist. So again, things like an optic neuritis, loss of vision in one eye, loss of color vision, pain around the eye, um, vertigo, that's the sense of spinning or movement, double vision, so seeing two in your vision, um, imbalance, um, walking problems, weakness in one arm, one leg, or one side of the body facial droop, which is sometimes called a Bell's palsy, um, severe pain in the face, sometimes called trigeminal neuralgia. These are all symptoms that um, would prompt a more thorough neurological evaluation. Let me ask you, does having multiple sclerosis raise a person's risk of other neurological diseases like stroke or, or other epilepsy, things like that? It raises the risk of certain neurological problems. Epilepsy is a good example. So with these scars on the brain, these so-called lesions, you know, these are areas of damage within the brain, and they can act as um, a focus for abnormal electrical activity, and that's what a seizure is. Um, and um, when people have multiple seizures over time, we call that epilepsy. So MS patients do have a higher risk of epilepsy. They have a higher risk of headaches, including migraines. They have a, a much increased risk for depression and anxiety. Those are important to recognize and treat. Um, you know, um, uh, urinary and bowel dysfunction is very common in MS, um, particularly for folks who are severely affected. Um, and, um, and other more rare neurological diseases are more common. I don't believe stroke is more common in patients with MS. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more information about multiple sclerosis with neurologist Dr. Corey McGraw after this short break. 
Thanks for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm speaking about multiple sclerosis with Dr. Corey McGraw, who's a neurologist with expertise in MS. Now, we don't have a cure yet for MS, but can you talk with me about what treatment can do for people? Absolutely. So in the last 40 years, we have seen a revolution in the treatment of MS. So the, the knowledge about MS, it's actually one of the, the, the most well-recognized um, neurological diseases for, for hundreds of years. Um, and because it's so unique, um, um, it, it manifests with neurological symptoms that are very notable. It oftentimes affects young people. Um, and so even, you know, 200 years ago, it was recognized as a clearly distinct um, disease entity. But for, for of course, uh, 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 centuries, we had no treatments for MS. Um, in the um, early 80s, there was the development of the first treatments for relapsing remitting MS. So these are what we call disease-modifying therapies. Um, these are medicines that help reduce the incidence of exacerbations in MS. Remember, attacks or relapses all mean the same thing. It helps reduce disability associated with those relapses. It reduces the severity of those relapses. So these are all very important things. And it reduces um, it reduces uh, um, the, the secondary issues coming with disability, including bladder and bowel incontinence, walking difficulties, um, and, uh, and, and these, uh, these um, disease-modifying therapies were developed throughout the, the end of the 20th century. But in the last 10 to 15 years, we've had an explosion of highly effective disease-modifying therapies. Our first oral therapies for MS highly effective infusion therapies for MS. Um, and for the first time, we have treatments not just for relapsing remitting MS, but also for what we call primary progressive MS. So we have an approved therapy um, that helps reduce the progression of the disability in primary progressive MS. So you have a lot of medication options, it sounds like. What about, do you ever prescribe physical therapy to your MS patients? Absolutely. So disease modifying therapies are only the first step in patients with MS. They're very important um, for preventing future disability, um, maintaining normal life, um, work, function at home. Um, and we almost take them for granted now because they're um, they're they're so powerful and so useful. But um, MS care is comprehensive. So in addition to disease modifying therapies, um, we look at a, you know, a patient in a very holistic way. Um, so um, for, for patients who have um, either an attack of MS or some more ongoing disability, physical therapy is very important. Um, for patients who have bladder and bowel involvement, we get urology and gastroenterology involved. Um, you know, it's amazing. Um, what treating uh, a little bit of urinary um, incontinence or frequency can do for people's lives. Um, you know, if you need to use the restroom 14 times a day, it's hard to sit on an airplane. It's hard to, you know, go to work. Even simple treatments can, can change people's lives. Um, you know, in addition to that, um, making sure patients have appropriate psychiatric care, including therapy and, and psychiatry is important. I mentioned depression is very common in, in MS um, and other, other comprehensive care modalities. Um, I, I think they're as important as the disease modifying therapies in patients' day-to-day -day lives. Is there any dietary advice that you give? Um, we, we mentioned vitamin D earlier. Um, as having some connection or importance in this, do foods high in vitamin D matter? For patients who are vitamin D deficient, um, the, the underlying causes really can't be overcome by diet. So we, we do recommend for folks who are vitamin D deficient that we do a vitamin D supplement, um, so, um, which, is, which is easy to do. You know, we think diet is very important in multiple sclerosis. We don't yet have good data to say um, one diet over the other. Um, I generally advocate for um, a healthy, balanced diet most research in MS out there is done on the Mediterranean diet. Um, I think that's a reasonable balanced diet that patients are able to do. Um, there are many sort of fad diets out there that get promoted. Um, there's not good science to support um, any, any particular sort of fad diet. Um, so I, I just recommend a, a general balanced um, diet for my patients. 
Now, are are most of your patients um, female patients with MS? Yeah, that's right. So, so about 70, 75% of all MS patients in the U.S. are female. Um, so, you know, that's important to recognize, but it's also important to recognize that not all MS patients are women. Um, so oftentimes um, men who have MS um, go unrecognized. Um, so, um, you know, 25% or so of patients who have MS are men. They have a later time to diagnosis, so they have more symptoms for longer before they're diagnosed. Um, they have more primary progressive MS, um, which may go a longer period of time before being diagnosed. So I, um, I always like to remind folks that, yes, it's, it's mostly women, but, um, you know, it, it's easy to miss it in men. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and my guest is neurologist, Dr. Corey McGraw. We're talking about multiple sclerosis. Can you talk about research into the gut microbiome? Absolutely. So this is a very interesting um, field in research, and it, it goes well beyond MS. But the gut microbiome is, is a concept that um, inside of our guts, we have a whole world of, of uh, bugs, of bacteria um, and parasites that are actually in balance with us. So um, they evolve as we do. And they do a lot of good things for us. So our gut bacteria are extremely important um, in, in health and nutrition. Um, and this has been long recognized, but what is, what is becoming more recognized is that these, these little guys are important in helping us regulate our immune system. So we, we oftentimes think about our gut as being inside our bodies, which is true. It's, the, it's inside our abdomen. But, you know, the tube that is the gut is actually connected to the outside world. So we take in food, right, through our mouths, through the outside world, and it works it, uh, through the outside world, and it works its way through us and then exits. Um, and so, so those, in many ways, those bacteria that live inside our gut are outside of our bodies. And so the, the interface between the gut um, and our bodies, and, and therefore our immune system in the world, is happening in the gut. Um, and so we interact with the world in many ways through our gut. And so having this, it's becoming increasingly evident that having the right balance of bacteria in our guts is very important for regulating the immune system. Um, you know, we think perhaps one um, underlying cause of the increasing incidence of MS could be antibiotic use. So the idea that we treat patients for all sorts of infections that may or may not need antibiotics, when we do that, we're wiping out not just the bad infections, but the good gut flora, we, flora meaning um, the bugs that live in our body. And so there's, there's, there's a growing body of research to show that having the right gut bugs um, is important in regulating the immune system. Even things like parasites, which we, the word itself evokes a negative idea, but, but parasites are, are um, complex organisms that um, have um, means to regulate our immune systems as well. So they, they, they actually produce um, uh, uh, proteins and other chemicals that calm our immune system down. And um, there's been some research in actually reintroducing some benign parasites mm -hmm. into people to help regulate their immune system. So, you know, we need to live in balance with these little guys. Um, and I think there's, you know, increasing understanding that that's the case. And, and you know, this is also our interface between diet um, and our immune system. So what we eat feeds these gut bacteria. Um, and so this is a this is a this is the the interface between what we do, how we act, how we live, and our immune systems. Well, there's MS is one of many autoimmune diseases. So, is there work being done to determine which bacteria or parasite matches up to MS and which may match up to other? immune disorders? Yes, absolutely. So that's the question. It, you know, um, it appears to be about the balance among many different bacteria and, and parasites. Um, they, they, they find their own balance with each other and they find their own balance within our guts. Um, but this is, this is an area that I think is very promising um, for the future. And I think people are interested in because you certainly feel empowered to 
um, culture their own bacteria. I think of it as a little farm that, um, you know, it does good things for us and we have to tend it just like we tend our gardens. What can you tell us about the protective sheath around the nerve fibers? Is this something that we're all born with? Yes. So, so the, so the, the um, underlying physiology of what's happening in MS is that our um, immune cells are learning um, within our bodies and they're being miseducated and um, to, to attack brain tissues. And when they get into our brain and our spinal cord, they recognize this fatty coating um, that surrounds all of our nerve cells. And this is called myelin. Um, and um, it is the insulation on the wires of our brain and our spinal cord. Um, and this insulation is very important, just like insulation on any wire, it helps protect um, the, the uh, information that's traveling through the wire. And it, uh, the um, immune system learns to actually damage that fatty myelin and strip it off the, the, the nerve cell. And that leads to these areas of scars. So within these scars that we mentioned, these so-called lesions, what we see is the loss of myelin or demyelination. So as you read about multiple sclerosis, you'll see it's called a demyelinating disease. It's not the only um, disease of demyelination, but it is certainly the most common. So does the myelin not regenerate? It doesn't grow back on its own? That's a great question, yeah. So, so when our brains are developing, um, our nerve cells uh, become myelinated. So our, our bodies um, um, place this fatty insulation along the nerve cells, and that's throughout our brain development. It actually continues well into our young adult life. So myelination continues to occur throughout our teenage years. This is one of the reasons that our teenagers um, uh, our children turn into monsters and then turn into adults is the is the finalization of uh, the myelinization of um, particularly the frontal lobes, which are the parts of the brain that control our sort of baser instincts. Um, but uh, so this so this myelination occurs uh, with demyelination. The body can actually repair that myelin, but it doesn't do it as effectively as when it originally developed throughout our development. So, so it, in fact, this is one of the reasons why our attacks of MS um, evolve over days to weeks as that, as that myelin is being damaged, but then improve over days to weeks to months because there, there's remyelination that's occurring. Now, what we one area of, of, of MS treatment that we continue to struggle with is enhancing remyelination. So, you know, we would like to find treatments that improve the remyelination um, after attacks or in progressive disease. And we've largely not been successful in doing that. What advance in MS do you think would make the most difference to the most number of people? We are very lucky to have many effective um, disease-modifying therapies for relapsing forms of MS. Um, in fact, we have about nine different mechanisms of action, and I can't even keep track of how many total drugs. It's in, it's in the 20s. Um, what we aren't good at is treating progressive MS. So most disability in folks who have MS, especially as they get older, is going to be from progressive MS. Um, and we don't have good treatments to, to greatly slow that progression or to reverse that progression. Um, and that's really where we need to be focusing now is the development of, of medicines and treatments that help us to repair damage that's already done. Um, and that's something I very much want for my patients. Well, this has been a terrific overview. Thank you so much to Dr. Corey McGraw. He's a neurologist at Upstate with expertise in multiple sclerosis. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Linda Lemenza, a poet and literacy specialist in Massachusetts, shows us the long arc that healing requires in two short poems that describe an accident and its aftermath. First comes, They Arrive at the ER. 
each of them separately, spaced apart by minutes, like my thoughts. My brother cringes at the sight of me. My sister murmurs, Lynn, Lynn. My lover smooths her hand on my forehead. They try not to gasp at the cervical collar, the stiff plastic cage that holds me. Mangled arm, swollen purple foot. They sit in chairs, in one row, across from my bed, binge-watching me like Netflix. And then, after four months, I can take a walk. At the edge of my driveway, I face my greatest fear, acorns, hundreds of them, like landmines beneath my crushed foot. Near the doorway to Mrs. Williams's house, I peek at her indoor rock garden, St. Francis stands in ferns. Atop a pickup truck, a gardener showers grass seed across the berm, nods to me. On Bedford Road, a familiar horse stands in the paddock, still wears a tartan plaid blanket. His eyes search mine. In a clear plastic bag, a sandwich lies on the sidewalk, seems lonely. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how do you know if you're burning out? If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.